Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. I'm excited to welcome you to Talking Sleep, a podcast that will explore a wide variety of topics related to the clinical practice of sleep medicine. In this episode, we'll discuss BPAP titration for non-OSA hypoventilation. Our correspondent, Dr. Tom Kuzniar, talks with Dr. Lisa Wolf, Associate Professor of Medicine and Neurology at Northwestern University and the Medical Director of Respiratory Care at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, both in Chicago. Dr. Wolf is a nationally recognized authority in non-invasive mechanical ventilation. This discussion will cover the benefits and drawbacks of empiric and in-lab bilevel titration therapy, how to determine the best method of treatment, the impact of insurance guidelines, and more. I'll turn it over to Dr. Kuzniar to get us started. Dr. Wolf, thank you for joining us today. Patients with hypoventilation may require bilevel therapy that can be delivered on a bilevel device platform or a home ventilator platform. There's some controversy as to whether these patients should all go through an in-app titration study. Could you tell us what are the pros and cons of using empiric therapy in such patients? First of all, I'd like to say um, thank you to Dr. Kuzniar for inviting me to speak on this topic because I think that it's very timely and is really impacting the field of sleep medicine in general. Um, you know, we typically have all been taught that everyone should go through both a diagnostic and then a therapeutic titration study prior to the initiation of home-based ventilation. But more and more because of the availability of automated devices, as well as the complexity that some of our patients face, we may be able to alter this paradigm. It is important to remember that obstructive sleep apnea is not the only diagnosis for which people will be using home-based non-invasive ventilation. And some of the patients who have a non-OSA diagnosis will not need to have diagnostic sleep studies at all, disorders like COPD or neuromuscular disease. And in our patients who have significant hypercapnia, oftentimes hypercapnia that's so significant that they're first identified because of in-hospital in admission, these patients need therapy that can be right now. It doesn't require the wait time involved in the lab, and these patients are frequently benefited by using advanced devices like full mechanical ventilator with mask. It's a completely different paradigm than we're used to. How do you see the pros and cons of using an in-lab titration in such patients? So what I would say is that in a perfect world, I would love it if every one of my patients could go through a full in-lab titration. I think patients very much benefit from the experience. Elaborate mask fittings that help to reduce leak and teach patients how they best can do the interface between themselves and their device. We can do really fine-tuned adjustments on settings that are not on the typical modes for auto-titration or self-titration. Adjustment of things like the rise, the inspiratory time, the trigger and cycle parameters, 
all of these are things that can be done in lab by a technologist. The, the con to this is that we need to update our labs so that they can meet these needs. Frequently, our labs don't have the physical plant. They don't have the necessary equipment to care for someone with a disability. Our doorways may not be wide enough. We may not have lifts to get people in and out of wheelchairs. And also, we need to modernize the protocols that we have in the lab. If we have sophisticated machines, but our technologists only know how to adjust the IPAP or the EPAP, then we're not really getting the most out of the equipment which is modern and newly available in our laboratories. Understanding these considerations, what are the factors affecting your choice of um, empiric versus in-lab therapy in your patients with hypoventilation? I think that there's a lot that's disease specific. And so, you know, we tend to do this thing where we look at all patients who have hypercapnia and throw them into one large category of hypercapnic respiratory failure. When in reality, the physiologies vary greatly and the need to be in the lab goes along with that. So for instance, in our patients that have obesity hypoventilation, the struggle between how much of their abnormality is due to upper airway obstruction versus pure hypoventilation can be very challenging without a formal in-lab titration. Whereas if I have a patient who has neuromuscular disease, uh, traditional neuromuscular disease, let's say um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, those patients can very easily initiate therapy at home where they have a lot of time to desensitize to the mask, can spend a couple of months getting used to small periods of time on their PAP device, and can use automated features so that they can get a full volume titration at home without needing to be in a lab because most patients, say, with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, don't have access to a laboratory that understands the need to titrate for ventilation and not just upper airway obstruction. And so I think that there's a big need to look at the pros and cons based on the diagnosis. The other thing that I would say is that these are not exclusive. We have many patients for whom empiric therapy is used initially to facilitate things like that long process of desensitization. But we are really looking forward to using a lot more of real-time monitoring with cloud apps and with using what we call management by exception, where we can look at specific factors on those downloads that let us know the patient is not successful. We may see persistence in high respiratory rates, persistence in inadequate tidal volumes that tell us that the patient is struggling. Those patients will likely benefit from going back to the lab. And so the use of empiric versus in-lab therapy may not be as much a distinction. It may be that we just change our protocols from what we're used to, which is in-lab first and empiric management later, to a time where we say for many of our patients, empiric first and in-lab for the guy that's struggling. 
So it sounds like you're already using a combination of in-lab titration and empiric um, settings. I'm wondering how much time would you allow for the patient to get acclimated on empiric setting before you get them into the lab? I will tell you that here, physiology also plays a significant role. So we know that in ALS specifically, um, the biggest factor that is determining this is the presence of bulbar physiology. In those that have significant impairment of the upper airway muscle, the ability to use PAP therapy is significantly impaired, and so the time for desensitization needs to be much longer. For instance, we know in ALS that if you have bulbar dysfunction, you are six times more likely to fail with the ability to tolerate non-invasive ventilation. So what do we do for these patients? We start them earlier. That's number one. Number two, we do things like control saliva, control insomnia. And then in addition to all of that, we look at doing specific setting changes that may help. And we'll discuss these in future podcasts, but adjustment of the rise time may be very beneficial in this environment. If we compare that to, say, a separate patient who has ALS but has limb onset disease rather than bulbar disease, what you'll find is that those patients who have a competent upper airway, who have no issues with spasticity in the vocal cords or in their posterior glottis, sensitization may be minutes, days, and they're ready to go because they're so dysmic. They want that breath now, and they can be very successful with home titrations. You'll find that those patients, sometimes the biggest problem we have is that during desensitization, they want a bigger breath, and that getting to full ventilation is the thing that's holding them up. And so you really need to get an idea of the physiology as you're trying to decide how long and how in-depth your initial desensitization period is versus an aggressive, um, even if it is empiric, escalation of therapy until you can get to appropriate full support. Switching gears a little, I'd like to talk about the insurance guidelines that may affect um, the choice between in-lab and empiric therapy. To what extent do you feel this is a factor? There's no doubt that our insurance guidelines put um, a sort of picture frame around how we make these choices in terms of caring for our patients. And the first thing to know is that once we are outside the realm of classic obstructive sleep apnea, the paradigms break down. The guidelines that look at non-invasive ventilation are referred to under the Medicare rubric, which has been also um, now used by almost all insurance programs. These guidelines are known as the RAD or respiratory assist disorders, um, the RAD guidelines. Um, the RAD guidelines are divided into those that have central sleep apnea, neuromuscular disease, COPD, or hypoventilation syndromes. And in this paradigm, a diagnostic sleep study is not necessary. And a titration study is an option, but it is not mandatory. It's important to know that because we would not want to waste time getting treatment to those who need treatment fast 
waiting for a study when according to the guidelines they can be treated right away. Um, it's important to know that because it impacts what we do both on the inpatient and the outpatient settings. Lastly, on the insurance side, it's important to know that devices are frequently used in the home to provide mask-based non-invasive ventilation. And these devices are mechanical ventilators. They are not RADS or respiratory assist devices. The rules on the insurance are very, very different. If you can show hypercapnic respiratory failure, then it doesn't matter what the underlying diagnosis is. You just get the machine based on the fact that the patient has demonstrated respiratory failure. And so that makes it really easy to meet expectations in terms of the insurance provider and the DME. But these devices are much, much more expensive for patients, and they should really only be used when appropriate. Let's pause for a moment before we learn more about bilevel titration therapy. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Bring the annual excellence of the sleep meeting to your own home with a virtual sleep meeting held August 27th through the 30th. Attendees will have exclusive access to pre-conference sessions, plus more course content and speakers than ever before, with recordings available on demand after the meeting. Learn more at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Let's return to our discussion with Dr. Tom Kuzniar and Dr. Lisa Wolf. A common scenario in everyday practice is a patient who's hospitalized and found to have hyperventilation syndrome, who now has to leave the hospital and needs a ventilator support device. What is your practice in managing such a patient? Um, I agree with you. This is a very common problem. Um, as sleep medicine physicians, we're frequently called because of one thing, an elevated CO2. And so then the question is, does that CO2 warrant empiric treatment as the patient leaves the hospital, or should the patient wait and be treated as a stable outpatient? What I would tell you is that there are differences based on physiology. We know that those patients who have elevated CO2 due to obesity hypoventilation have very impaired outcomes if they don't leave with non-invasive ventilation. They're more likely to be readmitted to the hospital, use doctor and medical resources, and even have an increased mortality. And if that's the case, empiric therapy is the rule of the day for these patients who need to leave the ICU. On the flip side, patients who have elevated CO2 due to COPD and emphysema, these patients, although they do better with non-invasive ventilation while in the intensive care unit, don't necessarily need to continue non-invasive ventilation once they reach their baseline. And those who at their baseline continue to have hypercapnia, yes, they need non-invasive ventilation. It both reduces hospital readmissions and it improves their life expectancy. What's interesting is that if we look at the sum total of the COPD data, it says wait two weeks before deciding whether to give NIV. Don't give it as they leave the hospital. 
What's also interesting about the trials in both of these areas is that they're European-based. In the European trials, all the patients with COPD were very skinny. And in the European PICWIC trials for obesity hypoventilation, they were obese. The biggest single challenge that we have in North America is we don't have these clean distinctions. Very often, we will be called for a patient with hypercapnia who is both obese and has a significant smoking history. And it's very challenging then to say, should I send this patient home with non-invasive ventilation under the guise of the guidelines for obesity hypoventilation, or should I wait two weeks like you would in a patient with COPD? Ultimately, the doctor at the bedside will have to make this decision. But in our current area, you are always better relying on the fact that the non-invasive ventilation ordered for the home will come along with it. Respiratory therapy and other support services in the home, and that may be of benefit to all patients. And so, although it's very challenging, I think that there's a huge role in the sleep physician sitting at the bedside and making these decisions. Many insurances require a statement that a bi-level device is not appropriate for such patients prior to considering the home ventilator. Under what circumstances do you think that the bi-level device is truly not appropriate? All right, so there are many scenarios. Let's go through them. First of all, for any of you who may be pediatricians, the typical bi-level or RAD device um, is not approved for pediatric use, and therefore you would need a full mechanical ventilator with mask. Next, the full mechanical ventilator with mask is different than the RAD device in that it has an internal battery. That internal battery is important for daytime use. So if you feel that the patient has any reason for daytime or portability, they would need to switch to the full mechanical ventilator. Examples of this are neuromuscular diseases where daytime SIP or mouthpiece ventilation is frequently used, or patients that have end-stage diseases, such as end-stage COPD or end-stage ILD, where they need to use non-invasive ventilation with masks because the level of dyspnea is so high during the day. In addition to all of that, we have some patients who live in geographies in which power is not reliable. For instance, patients who live in southern Florida or on the coasts in Texas where there are frequent hurricanes. If the patient has significant hypercapnic failure, even if they're only nighttime users, the presence of that battery is going to be fundamental to what's going on. Lastly, it's important to remember that in both obesity hypoventilation and in COPD, the RAD or bi-level devices have only been approved by insurance without a backup rate. And if the physician believes that the patient must have a backup rate, the only way to get it is to ratchet up to the more sophisticated device. Some examples of that would include the following. Patients who are on high doses of narcotics in addition to using their other uh, devices, they're at risk for central apneas and need that backup rate. Patients who have had other neurocognitive problems such as phrenic nerve paralysis or 
uh, disorders like MS or Chiari malformations, that kind of supporting information makes a big difference when discussing with your insurance provider why that backup rate is necessary and the presence of it important for the patient. From the practical perspective, if you were to set a ventilator support device empirically, what settings would you use for an obesity hypoventilation patient? In obesity hypoventilation, there are a couple of factors that are important. Number one, if you can find a device that includes auto EPAP as well as with volume assured pressure support, that will work nicely to compensate for both the EPAP needs as well as the IPAP and pressure support requirements. Next, typically our goal for ventilation in the average adult is going to be eight cc's per kilo on a targeted tidal volume or when assisting ventilation, depending on the brand of device you're using. There are some studies which have shown that you may need to escalate up to as high as 10 cc's per kilo in patients with obesity hypoventilation. The other factor which we have found in our program is very important, both in obesity hypoventilation and in COPD, is to remember that basal or atelectasis is best addressed if the pressure of the pressure support is delivered over an assured effective amount of time. And if you can do that by prolonging the inspiratory time, you are much more likely to open that atelectasis space, reduce dead space, and therefore improve ventilation. The best way to apply that depends on the brand of device you're using. In some devices, that will require going to pressure control rather than doing ST, which is the spontaneous timed or the more common bi-level mode. The difference being that in pressure control, the inspiratory time is applied on every single breath, and a prolonged inspiratory time will then be more likely to really pop open those bases. In other brands, you don't have to label the mode as pressure control but if a TI-min is available on the device, that will be applied to every single breath, and that device will then act as if it's in pressure control mode, really helping to open up those bases. Going back to my original scenario of a patient admitted to the hospital, would you ever discharge such a patient without a device, knowing that they have a date set for an in-lab titration? So what I would say is that it depends on the diagnosis. If the patient's underlying physiology was COPD, I absolutely would discharge them without a device and ask them to return to us in two weeks. At the time at which they return to us, the fundamental measurement would be CO2. If the CO2 measurement was still high, they absolutely would need initiation of non-invasive ventilation at that time when they're back to their baseline. What role does in-lab titration play with that? Well, that gets back to the discussion that we had in terms of the fact that COPD in the States is frequently associated with obesity. And that complex arrangement in which a patient has both OSA and COPD frequently referred to as the OSA-COPD overlap syndrome, 
can frequently impact the overall risk for the patient to develop things like pulmonary hypertension, which will have a significant impact on their mortality and their performance status in general. And that's very much um, in contrast to what we would do for a patient with obesity hypoventilation. In obesity hypoventilation, no, they need their equipment right away. They still should come back to the lab, but it should be two to three months later. On the other side, if the patient does not have either COPD or obesity hypoventilation, but as an alternative has neuromuscular disease, the patient with neuromuscular disease should be started on empiric therapy. They should be sent home on it right away. They should be set for an appointment for follow-up in the office during which they should have a download of their device. They should have an assessment with lung function and CO2 monitoring. And only if the empiric settings are failing should they need to be considered to go back to the lab. That patient with neuromuscular disease, for the most part, may never need to go to the lab. So deciding the physiology is the key feature here. Moving away from this clinical scenario, do you have any procedures set up for fast-tracking patients who need urgent end-lab titrations? Yes, I'm glad that you brought this up. Um, we do have some procedures for this, including a portable system in which our patients can have full titration while still in the hospital. I'm aware that most sleep programs do not have the option of doing full uh, lab-style titrations for an inpatient. But there are some times we found it helpful. For instance, we have a large program for left ventricular assist device in patients who have heart failure, and we feel that it's um, not really comfortable for our technologists to have LVADs in the sleep lab. Because of that, we do their studies while they're in the hospital. And similarly, patients that have need for nocturnal peritoneal dialysis, we don't have a way of having patients safely perform their peritoneal dialysis in the sleep lab. For those patients, we have a tech that will use a to-go study in order to take care of them. In terms of patients who are fast-tracked, our priorities for fast-tracking within the lab Number one is to make sure that we can study patients who need to go to surgery before they go to surgery. We find that if we do that, the need for potential empiric treatment after surgery is eliminated. And so we'd like to fast track these patients that we know about ahead of time. In patients who are coming out of the hospital that, quote, need fast track, that's been less of an issue for us. Because like I said, in the patients with obesity hypoventilation, we do empiric treatment. For those with neuromuscular disease, we start with empiric treatment. And in the COPD patients, we wait until they come back to clinic. And so we haven't needed to really bump off a patient from an inpatient or from an outpatient uh, polysomnography um, because we can get them on as they need or need to be scheduled. Could you talk about the specifics of the protocol for an inland titration of a patient with hypoventilation? Yes, thank you. That's a very interesting topic. There is a single protocol 
through the AASM that now looks at hypoventilation as a single diagnostic category. And it does a very good job at looking at some of the very important points, like the need to consider pressure control, like the need to consider a prolonged inspiratory time. The one factor that it doesn't really feature is an ability to look at the difference between our patients with obstructive lung disease versus restrictive lung disease versus hypoventilation. And I would encourage laboratories to try and look at the physiology ahead of time and alter their hypoventilation protocols to better address these underlying phenotypes. For instance, in patients who have COPD, we know that the goal to get them to what's called high-intensity pressure support is what has shown to be most effective. For that, we give our techs recommendations that the goal is to get the IPAP 19 or greater to meet that high-intensity goal. And they should do this at shorter TI minimums so that patients have a sufficient time for exhalation. Whereas in our patients with obesity hypoventilation, the text should understand that they're not just looking at whether the upper airway is open or closed, but what's the respiratory rate? As patients with obesity hypoventilation continue to be tachypneic, it's a sign that their ventilation is not adequately being addressed. And the IPAP needs to be increased until the total respiratory time comes down and the exhaled tidal volume is close to 8 to 10 cc's per kilo. That means that we need to expand our current algorithms to include this kind of um, really nitty-gritty of the potential that our devices have more than just IPAP, EPAP, and obstruction of the upper airway. Dr. Wolf, thank you very much for joining us today, and thank you for this very interesting podcast. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Dr. Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.